What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Blog Talk Radio. This is Creativity in Play. I'm Steve Colbert. And I'm Mary Alice Long. You can find us online at creativityandplay.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Creativity Play and download archived editions on iTunes. Our guest today on Creativity and Play is neuroscientist Eric Kandel. Dr. Kandel is a university professor at Columbia University, where he also founded the Center for Neurobiology and Behavior. In 2000, he won the Nobel Prize in Medicine for his work on memory storage in the brain. He is the author of a memoir, In Search of Memory. His latest book is The Age of Insight, The Quest to Understand the Unconscious in Art, Mind, and Brain, which explores the creative milieu in Vienna from 1900 to the present and how it led to collective and individual views across science, psychology, art, and philosophy about the unconscious mind. Eric Kandel, welcome to Creativity and Play. Thank you very much, Steve. Well, it's a great honor to talk to you today on these many, many topics. And I guess to start, I want to ask you about the biology part of creativity because a lot of uh, the work that that I think people are kind of maybe familiar with in, in education and, and even in the workplace and stuff very much comes out of the psychology field since the 1950s. And part of what you talk about in, in your new book is the role that biology plays in that. And you, you also say for biology, for biologists, the study of creativity is on the edge of the unknown. So can you say a little bit about what's the biology part of creativity and, and how can that help us understand it better? Well, there are many aspects of creativity. I mean, one of the things that emerged uh, in the course of doing this book uh, is the insight that Ernst Gombrich and Ernst Christ, two art historians, had about the nature of the perceptual process that you and I utilize when we look at anything in the world, and that is the information we get from the outside world is incomplete, and our brain reconstructs reality in our own brain, in our own head, if you will. And that itself is a creative process. So when we look at a work of art, which is the product of creativity, we're also engaging in a creative process in our own brain, obviously of of lesser nature than a creative process of producing the work of art. But we live with a creativity machine in the brain. So the mere act of perceiving involves aspects of creativity. And there are two well-defined components. One is what we call bottom-up creativity, and that is there are certain combinatorial rules that the brain uses for combining things in the world that it knows from evolutionary experience are likely to go together. But in addition, we have a storehouse of information. So when I look at your face or anyone's face, I compare it to other faces that I've seen, including the fact that I've seen your face before. So there is comparison going on, matching 
what we see now with what we've seen before and putting them together. In addition, there are the more conscious attempts at creativity or unconscious attempts at creativity in which we try to do something that is absolutely new. A simplest example is there are problems that can be solved systematically and there are problems that can be solved by a half phenomenon. And people have studied the difference between them, that is solving one one step at a time or getting an insight that allows you to solve the whole thing in one fell swoop. And if you solve it in one fell swoop, you light up the right cerebral hemisphere. And you can show this both with imaging and with electrophysiological recording that a particular part of the right hemisphere is responsible for this creative insight. And that is a resuscitation of a classical idea that Tuling Jackson, one of the founders of neurology, had, and which he first pointed out, that the left hemisphere of the brain, which is concerned with language and logic and reason, the right hemisphere is more concerned with play, with musicality, with creativity, with insight. So this old idea is now coming back in part, in new form, indicating that the right hemisphere is more um, playful, more creative, uh, more given to putting new combinations together. So we're really just beginning to explore that, but it's coming up with, with surprisingly interesting uh, results. One dramatic, so I'm sorry. Go ahead. One dramatic example is what is the disease called frontotemporal dementia, which is actually just written up in the New York Times recently, which is a variant of Alzheimer's disease. It involves somewhat different molecules, but it's a degenerative disease of the nervous system. Um, which also has a memory defect associated with, but often presents with language difficulty uh, and with behavioral difficulty. Um, if frontotemporal dementia is on the left side of the brain, it damages that side badly, but it frees up the right hemisphere because, as Euling Jackson pointed out, the two hemispheres inhibit one another. So if you damage one side, you remove that inhibitory constraint. So it frees up the right hemisphere. So this paradoxical thing happens with people that have this degenerative disease of the brain on the left-hand side. They have outbursts of creativity. People who have painted before start painting in bolder colors. People who have never been creative before take up music or painting for the first time. It's really quite remarkable. A guy called Bruce Miller has done some classic work on that. You also wrote in your book, Eric, about a young girl. I, I believe she was three, and she drew horses, unbelievable depiction of horses for her age. And I wonder if you can tell us about Yes, this her. is uh, this is an autistic girl. Um, autistic people have great difficulty with social interaction, but a small fraction of them are remarkably creative. This young girl, when she was very young, should, could draw horses that compared with Leonardo da Vinci's horses. They bounced off the page. Um, they were really quite remarkable. Now, she had a quite limited artistic career. Uh, once she began to acquire language, and which was slow with her, uh, and began to interact a little bit more, her drawing skills dropped off. 
But there are other autistic kids who are talented who continue to be creative even as they acquire language and they acquire their maximum intellectual capability. There's an artist by the name of Stephen who draws buildings. So he will fly around the center of a town, Washington, D.C., the Vatican and Rome, um, for about 15 or 20 minutes. And then he'll sit down in his studio for the next month and draw every single building he saw, every window in every building, every corners, every detail with enormous accuracy for memory and for physical detail. Absolutely quite spectacular. So you get people with various um, difficulties with brain function that nevertheless frees them up to be creative. Uh, for example, Chuck Close, the great portrait painter, is prosognosic. He's face blind. Can you imagine being a portrait painter and being face blind? He's also dyslexic. He has difficulty with numbers. So you'd think the guy would be mentally retarded. He's the furthest thing from it. He's extremely bright. He's very creative. He's developed a special style. He can handle images if they're flat. So he photographs the image, puts a piece of paper over it, divides the image into little squares, and carries that onto the canvas. So he's always working with a prescribed flat surface and never has to worry about depth, which he can't handle. Um, so there are many examples of how people overcome handicaps in order to bring out talents in the remaining parts of the brain. And Chuck Close is a fantastic uh, commentator on, on this topic of creativity as well. I've, I've That's uh, right. heard his interviews several times, which have been great. Uh, sort of Picking up on, um, uh, again, what we said in the introduction about your book, how it, it began sort of looking at uh, what was happening in Vienna in the early 1900s, and you, many people probably would be familiar with the, the whole coffee house culture and, and the salons that happened and the art that was happening at that time, but also then, you know, you, you bring into this mix the, what was happening in medicine and science, and really this this... Um, creative environment that was there at that time and you know we've seen at other points in history can you talk about that um, that piece first specifically why why you chose that and what was happening there and what's the implication for today do you see examples of where that kind of environment exists that the intersection of disciplines and people are happening today that we should be paying attention to for yeah. perhaps new insights yes yes absolutely uh, so let me begin with Vienna 1900. The reason I like Vienna uh, 1900 is several fold. One is I'm Viennese, um, and although I was kicked out in 1939, uh, I'm not fond of Vienna 1939, but I'm very fond of Vienna 1900 because it was a tremendous period of intellectual synthesis in which the view of the modern mind that we have today was formulated. Uh, in the Enlightenment of the 18th century, People thought that human beings were created by God to be rational creatures. Um, the Royal Society of London, which was formulated, uh, which was founded in about uh, 1680, was based on the principle um, that God was a mathematician and the function of scientists were to figure out the rules whereby he designed the universe. And the whole idea was that if we bring rational thought to bear upon objects, 
people in the world, we would be living in a better environment. Um, Vienna 1900, beginning with Rokotansky at the Vienna School of Medicine and going on to Freud, to Schnitzler, and to the painters that I deal with, realized that that's a completely incorrect view of human nature, that there are important unconscious components, irrational components to human behavior, to the human mind, which have to be taken into consideration if we're going to get a useful understanding of how people function. This is a profound insight. This is really the world we live in today. Um, and they showed this in various ways. I mean, Freud's um, whole theory of psychoanalysis is based upon the fact that many of our actions are determined by unconscious processes, by instinctual drives, uh, both erotic and aggressive, um, and that much of our mental life is unconscious. And we now know through modern neurobiology that all of that is true. Uh, Freud missed certain things. He, for example, had very limited insight into female sexuality. But um, Klimt, who had fantastic insight into female sexuality, described that female sexual life, that women had as complete a sexual life as men had, um, they were by no means passive creatures. They could be actively involved in enjoying their sexual experiences. So what he missed, what Freud missed, the other major people in Vienna 1900 were able to fill in. And as you pointed out, there was not only this emergence of a new view of the human mind, but there were new insights into music, into economics, into philosophy, because Vienna was a small city that brought together in part because it encouraged people from all over the Austro-Hungarian Empire to move into Vienna, brought together a merger of cultures and ideas that gave rise to a tremendously creative environment. And, of course, this has characterized the United States, which has until recently welcomed people from all parts of the world uh, and encouraged their... Um, expressing themselves in interesting and important ways. And there is a desire on the part of many organizations to try to encourage creativity by bringing people together in a variety of ways. And to be honest, now this is uh, you know propaganda for Columbia University, but our president, Lee Bollinger, feels very strongly um, that this is a wonderful time to use brain science as a center for rethinking the academic curriculum at Columbia. Bollinger's argued that to a certain degree, everyone at the university works on the human mind. They could be in the business school working on decision-making. They can be in School of Fine Arts thinking about creativity in the arts. Um, they can be in the law school thinking about the nature of testimony. Is it reliable or is it not? I mean, all of these questions really revolve around the nature of the human mind. The better we understand it, the better we'll be able to really function in the democratic society. So he has encouraged what we now call the Mind-Brain Behavior Initiative, which is designed to bring the various components of brain sciences together with other aspects in the university, with art, with music, with history, with law, with business. Other schools are thinking along similar lines. Eric, when you uh, write about Freud, 
because I'm a play-based Jungian therapist, yes. I'm very interested in Freud and all his writings and what he um, accomplished, and then following him, Freud and others. And you asked the question in your book, What Are Dreams?, and since I know that, and many others know that many creations have come out of dreams, as a result of a dream, I wonder what you think about dreams, other than what you wrote in the book, and how do you find inner meaning? How do we find inner meaning in our life? Through dreams and other ways. Um, well, uh, I'm not a specialist on dreams. Uh, I, I'm sort of, you know, influenced by Freud's view of the dream that it uses information of the day, what he called the day's residue, and is used to work out, you know, unconscious material, unconscious wish fulfillments. Um, and, you know, I, it's hard for me to evaluate how absolutely correct that is. Certainly some dreams fit those criteria. With all do, I really am not in a position um, to speak to. But how do we find meaning in our lives uh, to try to structure? We do it by trying to structure our lives in a meaningful way, to select careers that are genuinely enjoyable. Um, I mean, one of the reasons I enjoyed working on this book is that I felt, I feel very privileged in the career that I chose, particularly when you consider the alternatives that I considered, um, because I don't for a moment feel I'm working. I mean, obviously, <laughs> writing a book is work, but I consider it very pleasurable work. It's sort of like a workout in tennis. It's work, but one loves it, and I loved working on the book. Um, and I feel the same way about my science. So I think it's important to select two things that you thoroughly enjoy, your partner and your work. And I speak very frankly to the women in my lab uh, who obviously in some ways, even though we're now living in a society in which women have absolutely every opportunity, they should have every opportunity to do what they want uh, in an absolutely equal way with men, they still often feel there's a special responsibility for them in marriage and particularly in parenthood. And one can't deny that when the chips are down, somehow the children tend to go more to the mother than to the father. But I urge them not to forgo their career, that once the kids are gone, they've got a rich life. We live much longer than we originally thought we would. Uh, and to have a pleasurable career, once you know the kids leave home and the dog dies, is very important for women as for men. And I also, in terms of dreams, I also think of dreams as daydreaming. So we're, you know, in yes. living a dream. And so in your book, you also refer to ways to create that come through things like daydreaming, walking, taking a shower, when Re you are slowing down. Right. So what, what, what Chris would call regression in the service of the ego. Creativity comes in moments of relaxation. Uh, and Chris divided, I mean, lots of people do this, uh, divided the structure of a creative experience into two parts. Uh, the key insight and then the working through. And the key insight, um, the aha phenomenon, often comes when you're working on a problem, you're not making any progress, you go to sleep and you wake up and boom, the solution is there, or you go for a walk and it comes to you. 
or you're in a shower, it comes to you, you're daydreaming. It comes to you in moments in which you're not consciously working on the problem and you're letting your unconscious sort of grind away and come up with new combinations, new insights. Um, I think this is true for most people. Yes. Yes. Thinking about sort of this creative process, just as you were describing of this combination of insights and working through, and and I think a lot of the other um, ideas that you raise in the book, what's the implication for how we should be applying this in schools and education? I mean, I think you're well aware that a lot of the great insights that colleagues like yourself um, have had um, about how the brain works and therefore how we learn are, are things that we're not yet applying, even though we know that that that's the way we do things, that's the way we learn, that's the way the brain works, but we're not always bridging the pra- bridging it into practice in the classroom, particularly in, in, in our education approaches in general. So what are some of the key things we should be thinking about more in terms of applying them to doing education differently? Um, well, I, you know, I think schools vary. I think there's some schools that are really quite wonderful. I mean, um, my children, my grandchildren, go to a school in San Francisco called Brandeis, and I'm absolutely thrilled by some of the projects my grandchildren have done. So um, there is a class that both of them have gone through, my my elder grandson, Izzy, uh, and my younger granddaughter, Maya. And that is um, to learn about an artist, and and try to paint like they do. So my grandson, Izzy, uh, became interested in Chuck Close and actually wrote an extremely interesting essay on Chuck Close, which I sent to Chuck Close when Izzy sent me a copy and Chuck quite liked it, um, (laughs) and painted as uh, Chuck Close did. And recently, Maya uh, studied uh, Munch, uh, the art. one of the originators of expressionist painting, and she did the scream, this famous painting that just sold for what 112 million dollars at Sotheby. I saw it actually a couple of weekends ago, um, and it was remarkable um, what both of them did. And certainly, the the monk was even more difficult to do in some ways. Um, and I think doing things like that are wonderful. So I had an interesting experience in my own life. Um, you know, I didn't plan to become a scientist. Uh, I went to medical school with one idea, to become a psychoanalyst. I'd gotten to know Ernst Chris through his daughter, and he convinced me that psychoanalysis is the way to study the human mind. Um, and I went to medical school only because I thought to be an effective psychoanalyst, you had to go to medical school. And I took the four prerequisite courses, and I thought they were boring, you know, Introductory biology, physics, chemistry, organic chemistry. Um, the first two years of medical school were so-so. Basic science courses, not terribly well taught. And then I enjoyed the clinical experience an enormous amount. In my senior year, I had a six-month period in which I could do whatever I wanted to. So I thought that even a Park Avenue scientist, a Park Avenue analyst, should know something about science, about brain science. So I applied and worked in a lab where they did research on the brain. And I fell in love with it. Working in a lab is so much different than reading a book about it. You know, it's a little bit like 
having an exercise of doing a painting. You're thinking on your own. You're working problems through. You're using your hands. It's a very, very different kind of experience. So I think giving kids experience in which they do things, they do projects, the kinds of things that happens in real life that turn us on is what is important as an educational experience. Obviously, they've got to learn how to read and write, but they also have to learn how to use that in a somewhat original way. Eric, I was involved with a nonprofit that uh, the idea was to bring together art and science. And mm. so I know you write about that uh, in your book and how they're close kins, art and science. And so I wonder about your ideas on how to bridge what for many is a gap between the two. Um I mean, I've never seen this as a serious problem, but certainly it is because many people think of it. I mean, C.P. Snow first pointed it out, and it certainly had been, even without us pointing it out, we were aware of it. Um, I think there are two aspects to it. The argument that C.P. Snow made is that um, a scientist like myself can enjoy uh, Wagner's Ring Cycle uh, or read Shakespeare without any difficulty, but... um, a Shakespeare scholar might have a difficult time understanding uh, principles of neuroscience, our textbook on the brain. Um, I think that can be overcome. I think science can be readily explained in very straightforward terms to any you know, reasonably educated person. Uh, and I think that anybody who gets involved in trying to understand issues of science will find the excitement in it. My son laughs at me when I say this, but I don't understand why most people don't find science as exhilarating as they find football and baseball. Um, It offers tremendous insight and fun if you have a chance to think about it. And it is interesting that, you know, good newspapers, good journals, popular journals, more and more are taking up science topics. And Charlie Rose doing the Brain Series and other kinds of science things really is testimony to the fact that there is an audience out there extremely curious that wants to learn about science. Um, So one is just the issue of of communication. The second is the issue that people have the feeling that if they um, think of their response to art in biological terms, it's going to trivialize, dehumanize the aesthetic experience. And I think this is nonsense. Uh, When you see King Lear and you read an interesting commentary on it by Bradley or you read something about Wagner's ring cycle, which is extremely complicated, the light motifs, etc., etc., this does not dehumanize Wagner for you or Shakespeare for you. It gives you new insights, additional insights above and beyond your initial aesthetic response to the work of art. And I feel the same way. I don't think that knowing that there's a large face representation in the brain and one of the reasons we can respond so specially to faces is because our brain is constructed. Faces are important for human interaction. They're the key to all social interactions, and we're immensely social animals. That we respond to exaggeration because the brain has cells that respond dramatically if you exaggerate the face. Um, so the artists have tapped into intrinsic brain processes and learned 
unconsciously or consciously to exploit them. Well, knowing that those brain processes exist only enhance your appreciation of the talent of the artist and the talent of the perceiver of the art who responds to it. So I think, you know, what I try to do is how the beholder, the viewer, responds to work of art in biological terms. This is the issue that Gombrich and Regal and, and Chris, the great art historians of Vienna, concern themselves with. This in no way dehumanizes anything. It simply expands your appreciation of, of art and doesn't weaken any other component of your response. Well, Eric, thank you so much for joining us on Creativity and Play today and for the work that you're doing to advance our understanding of creativity in the brain. Well, thank you very much for having me. This was very enjoyable. Thank you. Eric Kandel is Nobel-winning neurobiologist at Columbia University and author of The Age of Insight, The Quest to Understand the Unconscious and Art, Mind, and Brain. Our theme music is Kindergarten, composed and performed by Jonathan Batiste. You can listen to this show and previous shows again and find more information about our guests and coming shows at creativityandplay.com and find Creativity and Play on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes as well. Creativity and Play is a production of the International Center for Creativity and Imagination in partnership with the National Creativity Network. I'm Steve Delbert. And I'm Mary Alice Long. Thank you so much, Eric, for joining us today. Pleasure. I really enjoyed myself. Thank you very much for inviting me.